Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the new and improved podcast, and we are now called What the Head? Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. New title, new avatar, same two critics, so you don't get that. Yeah, we're we're it's it's we're just painting over <laughs> and hoping that that uh, that that is enough. It's uh, a mild <laughs> motivation, nothing major. Yeah, no, we're no, we're 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 getting some professional veneer on here. We are we are on it. <laughs> I wouldn't go so far to say professional. Shh, don't tell them that. <laughs> um, today's episode, we're going to be talking about adaptations, essentially a book to the silver screen adaptations. Yeah, direct adaptations. Let's say right. story adaptations, uh, because the the broader form of adaptation that we see in like comics, where it's we're gonna we're gonna adapt this like general character Thor, not a Thor story, but right. like now there's movie Thor, not that. Right, because that's just been an entirely different episode, and we're not going to be doing like plays to screen either, because, because that, again, that would is... also be another episode. Yeah, that would that would involve me having to read a lot more plays again to remember what that's <laughs> like. Uh, <laughs> Although we probably should do like a podcast with like an episode about a Shakespeare film, but later on. Yes, yes, much later. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, uh, in yes. your opinion, what makes a good uh, should a good adaptation strive to achieve? Well, um, for me, the when I define what I'm looking for in an adaptation, I, I define I split this into two categories. Uh, the the one that I think is the best to shoot for is what I call the genre adaptation, which is where you adapt the original story to the constraints of the genre that you're adapting to. So the the literal it, it making it a one to one it like scene to scene image to image line to line is not is not the preferable. <laughs> that is that is. Uh, that is to be avoided at all costs. Right. Uh, but rather, you you take the the concepts, the themes, the 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 ways these characters function, and you figure out how the medium you're moving it to, in this case, film, uh, can best represent that. Which will 100% of the time not mean being exactly like the book. <laughs> well, I'm I'm of the same mind to some extent. I just want a good story. Mm. I don't care if you leave out 90% of the book if the movie's any good. Yeah. Because um, you have to understand that the audience for the movie, probably 80 to 70% of them haven't read the book. <laughs> Charitably. Right. Charitably that and low of a number. Don't read. I'm just saying the books that most people choose to adapt, even though they are bestsellers, bestsellers is sort of a, it's almost like a, a misnomer in terms because it can be a bestseller, yes, but that doesn't mean eighty percent of your movie audience has read it. Right. Um, and, and there are there are plenty of best selling books, despite being someone who who considers himself a reader. Uh, I, I there are lots of best selling books I don't read because exactly. I'm a snob. No, like a lot of movies that I've seen that have been adapted, I haven't read the book. <laughs> or even there there are uh, movies that I love that I didn't realize until far later were adaptations of books. Um, exactly. Like, for example, the, the, the sort of top example for me would be The Thing, which is technically, it's, it's like a sort of an adaptation a couple times over because the, it's it, sort of an adaptation slash remake of The Thing from Another World. Right. Uh, but it's also, it's also much closer to the text of the story that A Thing from Another World was based on, which is Who Goes There by uh, John, John W. Campbell. Right. So, um, bunch of that stuff. 
but yeah, so like there, there, there are tons of movies that I loved I didn't realize until later were adapted from a particular thing. Well, honestly, such as the thing. <laughs> for me, it was one of the best adaptations I've ever seen. I've read the book. Is Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown? Mm. Uh, which is what well, uh, is it? Rum Punch. It's Rum Punch based on an Elmore Leonard book. Rum Punch is actually like the second and like a little bit of an anthology with the with the uh, of a series of books with the same characters. Mm. The De Niro and Samuel Jackson character are actually recurring characters somewhat in the Elmore Leonard universe. Because oh. uh, in the first book they were also was, the book, first book they were in called, was called Switch, and it also had Bridget Fonda's character in it as well. Uh, now I have not read the book, but as I understand it, n- lots of changes. Lots of changes, but the book it feels like the book, and like even though Tarantino made it his own, it still felt a lot like Elmore Leonard because Elmore Leonard is Tarantino's favorite author. So all the things that are typically what we call Tarantino-esque are also, also Elmore Leonard-esque, and so it just feels like you're watching an Elmore Leonard movie, regardless. Yeah, like having having that match between uh, director and and writer stylistically, I think is is you know super important to making that bridge between forms. Uh, well, we just named two examples, and they both and they both sort of feed into the opposite ways of how to adapt a book. Mm. Uh, you said yours. Uh, uh, well, the thing. Go ahead. What? Yeah, yeah. The well, the the thing is closer to and it's been a while since i've read the novella um but the thing is closer to the original book than the uh the thing from another world was but of course the thing from another world came out uh god when did that come out that was was that late 50s early 60s i don't don't remember i'm bad with i'm bad with time the howard Uh, hawks movie or the yeah the yeah the howard hawks movies i think if i remember correctly is uh late 40s early 50s oh okay uh in that case the novella is probably older than i thought uh, but anyway, uh, be- just because of the, the time, uh, and the, uh, you know, effects limitations of the time that, that the Howard Hawks version came out, like, there's, I think one, one thing to consider in terms of adaptations is also the technical limits right. on these kinds of things, because, you know, what Carpenter and the, the incredible people that he worked with, uh, in the 80s, Rick Baker. uh, yeah, they could do more things, and also just because of the culture uh, difference between you know the the forties and the eighties right. were were also allowed to do much more. <laughs> well, not only that, but not just in terms of like technical limitations, but when you write something down on a page, the only limitation is the person who's reading its imagination to envision it. Yeah. Whereas the, when uh, you translate it to screen, you're going to have to figure out okay, what can I reasonably make it make it to the screen without making it look goofy or silly. Like, or you, lean into the goofiness if, if right. you decide to go that route. But well, for perfect example, in, in The Shining, Stanley Kubrick, in the book, Stephen King is not a, uh, the, the hotel, is the mm. Overlook Hotel, but it's not a maze that's outside. It's a series of topiary animals, giant yeah. hedge animals that come to life. And Kubrick and his genius was like, well, that's going to look just silly. <laughs> I'm just going to make it a maze and I can have a motif of mazes, and that works better visually, cinematically, than it would in a book. Yeah, and I mean, The Shining is also high on my list of... Uh, and I think that idea of, of understanding and dealing with the constraints 
of film, which are of course very different from the constraints of, of, uh, you know, written words. Uh, but I, I think one of the, the things that this also allows is, uh, and I haven't read the book for this one either. Uh, although I know you have, uh, because jaws, jaws is, um, <laughs> a fascinating case of adaptation in okay. a couple of senses, because, uh, t- Tell, remind me and and the audience if they have not read Jaws, which I think um, actually I think oh yeah, according to my data, you are the only person who has read Jaws. Uh. <laughs> Jaws is a book that is almost nothing like the movie, in so much that there is a love triangle between Brody and Richard Dreyfuss's characters and Brody's wife. And it's not like a full-fledged love triangle, but it's a love triangle that takes up a good enough portion of the book. And also, there's a whole subplot with the mob killing Brody's dog or cat. Either way, wow. it's, <laughs> it's a thing that when you watch the movie, like, you know, Steven Spielberg actually, he, he's a pretty good guy. He's not a pretty good guy. He's a real fucking genius because he looked at this book like, you know, the only thing worth telling is about the fucking shark. Why are we... <laughs> what is all this other crap? And Bench, Peter Benchley, of course, was upset that how dare you take out all my wonderful little, like, dramatic little subplots. He's like, no, 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 no. Trust me. This is only getting in the way of the shark, which is the only thing anyone's going to want to care about. Right. But the shark is also core to, to why I wanted to bring this up, which is there is a, a danger in adapting to over plan or over design certain things like we are blessed to live in the universe where bruce the shark malfunctioned constantly <laughs> yes and so instead of having like let's show the this like mechanical shark all the time they had to lean into the the ways that you build tension in film through absence or through net like through you know the music and the build-up and like those forms of of narr- like those ways of helping narrative tension with things that books don't get to use as opposed to just showing the monster which they wanted to do right i remember i really remember the odd thing about when spielberg did jurassic park and he had all those amazing special effects the number one complaint i remember hearing as a child was why couldn't it be like Jaws where they hid the monsters throughout most of the movie? <laughs> really? And I remember going, well, I was 13. I was like, shut up, this dinosaur is awful. <laughs> How do you not want to see this? But as I'm older, I'm like, because these are two different things. Jurassic yeah. Park, the dinosaurs are much more integral to the story, whereas Jaws, the shark is really just a motif. It's a MacGuffin. Jaws right. is not about the shark, which is what Spielberg either through because he was forced to by fate or because what he was originally intended to do, it's not. A, it's about three guys on a boat. And wait, wait, wait. Ma- hmm? the, sh- the shark is a MacGuffin. Oh, my God. I just realized what's in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Had to. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, no, the... Um, the I, I think that there's especially for for something like film that that has these these very like the the possibilities of what technology can allow can also be very seductive to people wanting to use those as flashily as possible and not necessarily in the way that best serves the story. So I think there are 
uh, and I think this this will probably tie into some of the stuff we say a little bit later about fandom and about like what people want versus what is good. But right. I think that is sort of core to that uh, that discussion. Well, just to be clear, like the two ways that we've discussed to adapt a book mm. is either a be true to the original author or the author's intent, which is basically the thing from another world mm. in which you are attempting to be as faithful to the book as possible. Or, or really, the the thing more than the thing from another world. Right. But, uh, yeah. Uh, or the director is the author, and thus it's their story to tell, and all they really need the book uh, is as credit for the other author. Yeah. Because, <laughs> actually, uh, Quentin Tarantino and Matthew Vaughn, who directed Stardust, mm. both have said when they called um, the original author of the book, when Tarantino called Elmore Leonard and when Vaughn called Neil Gaiman, they said... Do you mind if I change some things around? Both of the original authors of the book said, "It's your story now. Do whatever you need to do." Which, yeah, that's a that's an incredibly healthy outlook to have. That's good to hear. Well, and and that's one like it's one of the things where I don't understand when people try to compare the book to the movie. Yeah, like I understand like the, the desire to do so because if you love a book and then you see the movie, like, you really want it to be like the book, but the two different mediums, so they're not going to be the same. Right. They're going to move you in a different way. They're going to shock you in a different way. And so it's really unfair to both the book and the movie to try to compare the two because it's like when you, it's like if you had a play based off a painting and you said, well, I really like the painting better. It's like, well, that's nice. <laughs> How, can you make it a little bit more like the painting? The people right. move around too much and they're saying all these words that the they're painting talking. didn't There's say. There's no talking in the painting. <laughs> I like that comparison. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a perfect example because I love Stardust, Neil Gaiman Stardust. It's one of the books I read once a year. Yeah, it's a super, like, it's it's a very charming, like, modern fairy tale. Right. The movie I enjoy, and yet in my head I have to stop myself from sometimes going, I don't like it as much as the book. That's irrelevant. Mm. The movie is good. <laughs> right. There are some um, things the movies the movie does that I don't like, but that's because that's Matthew Vaughn and not Neil Gaiman. Yeah, and I mean, sort of in the the, the opposite case from that for me is uh, Blade Runner. Right. <laughs> uh, the the now I I this is not to throw shade on Philip K. Dick because I like other Philip K. Dick books, right. but do androids dream of electric sheep? Is I mean, really, it is forever poisoned by the fact that I have seen Blade Runner. Right. Uh, and like obviously, like older sci-fi had certain uh, a certain level of odd of a of a particular kind of oddness to it right. that um, that do androids dream of electric sheep kind of suffers from. Whereas as Blade Runner with Blade Runner, Ridley Scott took the the bro- like the the broader bigger parts of the story thematically and meshed them with the sort with with you know the the kind of cyberpunk aesthetic that was coming out between like him and and also like blade uh, not blade runner that's what i'm talking about uh neuromancer <laughs> came out shortly thereafter like this the there was just a bunch of stuff sort of coming together at that same time uh to to make something that is true to themes of the novel and you can find little bits that are lifted whether it's character names or or whether it's it's um even some lines but it is not the same well and this is something else. Like sometimes you have watched the movie before you read the book. 
which, mm. as we discussed, is more than likely how you're going to get into the book. Yeah, how there's, I got there's into a... Elmore Leonard. Is how I got mm. into Ed McBain. I saw a high and low before I read anything by Ed McBain. Oh, God. That is... Could, could just That is an amazing cultural crossroad right there. <laughs> like... American pulp crime fiction as interpreted by the most legendary of Japanese cinema craftsmen. Well, <laughs> to be fair to Kurosawa, Jap- uh, Kurosawa is one of the more Western-friendly Japanese characters. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, like, there's a reason that he was, you know, trumpeted so much by Spielberg and Lucas and, and all those people. Well, well, part of that reason is because he was pushed really hard by the Western uh, film distributors. Because they mm. thought he would sell better over in the Western Hemisphere, because he had so many of the tropes and qualities of other Western storytellers. Well, it's almost had... like it's imp- it's almost like it's impossible in the modern era to separate cultural products from capitalism. <laughs> well, because well, like, uh, you have a, a similar time, a uh, a, a cohort of Kurosawa's uh, Yashiro Ozu, also mm. one of the great masters of cinema, also one of the great Japanese masters of cinema. He didn't start getting pushed into Western film markets until much later. So consequently, you have a lot less people. Mainly because Ozu didn't do samurai movies. He did slice-of-life Japanese movies, and he thought Western audiences didn't want to see that. Yeah, and uh, and Kurosawa didn't really dig into the slice-of-life Japanese movies until way later in his life. Well, actually, no, he did that early on, but those weren't the movies they pushed. They just pushed... The right, movie. okay, yeah, the, in terms of the ones that we saw, that's that's right. true, that's fair. In fact, if you talk to a lot of Kurosawa fans right now, they've seen, by and large, most of the samurai movies. Mm. And that, I think, plays into a little bit of orientalism. Yeah. Uh, uh, but we're getting off topic, as we all want to do. Right. <laughs> but getting back to seeing the movie first, reading the book second. It's another right. part of you have to divorce divorce of what di- divorce yourself from what you saw <clears throat> from what you're about to read. Because again, you're reading a different artist in a different medium. Yeah. So while High and Low is a brilliant movie, or two movies in one, and McBain is a completely different mode of storytelling it's much more verbal it's much more rat-a-tat-tat and it's much more cohesive because he didn't have to worry about merging two styles right um the uh, i think there's there's something to be said there also for how we watch different versions of the same story and like the, the presumptions that we carry with us and i think there's there's a similar uh I don't know, I recommend at least, and what I try to do when I watch adaptations of things that I already like in another form, or when I read adaptations of something that I've already seen, or whatever, whichever direction, uh, is very similar to the process that I go that, that I sort of adopt when I'm watching things from a different era. Uh, because, you know, to be able to watch old horror movies and not just watch them, uh, like, ironically, because, oh, it's so silly how uh, people were scared by this fake skeleton. Right. Uh, I think there's there's a, a kind of cognitive framing that is that that can make it uh, easier to enjoy these kinds of things in in their uh, intended frame, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, like it's basically you you just have to go okay. This is a different. It's like you really can't even look at it as the same story because I watched Jurassic Park. God knows how many times before I read the book, and the book is much. I don't want to say more, adult. It's much more of a Michael Crichton book. Right. Like, you know, like it actually gets into scientific theories and create computers and how computers work and operate and 
the basic functionality and the scientific mm. theory behind cloning and all that. Whereas Spielberg's Jurassic Park is really just, it's a really fun monster movie. Yeah, it's, uh, oh, that was actually something I, I this dropped out of my head while we were talking about other things. But I, I also think, like, you do see shadows of that Jaws style uh, hiding the monster with the, the raptors early on, though. I will oh, say yeah. that. Like, pe- people who say that is not present in Jurassic Park were clearly not paying attention. Or maybe uh, they were paying too much attention and got to pull the head out of the ass and just have fun. Yeah, one of the, one of those or both. Uh, basically, <laughs> everyone can't be true. Yeah, basically everyone but us is watching movies wrong. Uh, <laughs> There's the next episode. Everyone but us is doing it wrong. Uh, yes. Uh, but well, like a perfect example. And this would sort of, I guess, lead us into the next part. Is okay. The Harry Potter series. Mm. I read. I saw the first two Harry Potter movies, Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets before I read any of the books. Or Philosopher's Stone, if you are outside of the U.S. <laughs> yes. And I thought the movies were good, so that's why I picked up the books. And the books were really good, so I went back and rewatched the first two movies, and quite literally, I fell a fucking sleep. <laughs> because it is so fucking faithful, I'm like, I'm just watching the same damn story over and over. <laughs> Yeah. Like, they make some changes, but it's like stuff like let's give it a Hermione stuff and focus on this. But it, that's it. And so I'm like, not only is I am I a little bit like, of course you got to do a Hermione stuff. You gave Ron more <laughs> to do, even though she's basically the one who saves the day in the book. This is just, this is a bad adaptation. And I remember fans going, these are the two best ones. I'm like, no, no, these are the two worst ones. Because the like, third... wasn't wasn't the main reason why a lot of people said, "Oh, these are are better," had more to do with like the sort of the aesthetic choices to make them make them seem more like, "Oh, we'll have them dress like normal kids sometimes" or whatever. Well, okay, now uh, the first two movies they are almost faithful, almost too faithful to the book. The third mm. movie diverged, like introduced some other things, but for the first time, watching Prisoner of Azkaban, Az- uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, directed by, um, oh crap, I have his name down somewhere. Uh, anyway, the director finally, uh, Alfonso Kilian, he finally made the movie seem like a real world. Mm. The first two movies just felt like, these, this is a movie, and we took it from another book, and you can tell there's a source material here. Yeah, there's, uh, I don't know, there's a, a sort of fairy taleishness that I think they lean into. There's a staleness, mean... there's a staleness to the first two movies. Mm. Azkaban, there's feels like there are moments where it feels like the world continues beyond the frame. Also, I, I'm not, I'm, uh, I don't have anything against Harry Potter, but it's not in my nerd wheelhouse. Oh, but yeah, yeah. I do know that that was the first one that had Gary Oldman. It is, and it's the first one that felt alive. It's the first one that felt like an actual fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> and like I read the book and I seen the movie and I didn't care that it had all these changes in it because the movie was fucking good for once. And for once, it made me feel like these were actual characters. Uh, yes, let us let us uh, let us take a pause here to consider that. Ah, yes, we're we're trying to to we're rebranding ourselves and honing our format to be a little tighter, and also choosing to drop some shade on Harry Potter movies, which, I, which I'm sure is a great way to to welcome people <laughs> into the fold. Listen, Harry Potter fans just need to learn to fucking man up, a woman up, what up. <laughs> Uh, speaking of why this is a transition, what is our next uh, uh, sphere of discussion? 
the possibility that fans just maybe demand too much of adaptations. Oh, I, I have opinions here. <laughs> like, they, they want things to be too faithful to the detriment of the story. Yes. And it goes um, back to what we were talking about, about how we're deal, dealing with two mediums, how they don't seem to understand these are two vastly different mediums. Right. Uh, and they're not just media, they're not just the differences in the mediums technically, the me- media technically, right. but the, also the differences in how people interact with those media and the, I think the kind of biases that they, that they carry with them from one to the other. Uh, so now we are, we are of course, uh, hosted here on, on, uh, the fundamentals. So <laughs> what I'm about to say will sound like I am, am mocking the hand that feeds us. But as I have said, uh, and as I said when we were talking about this show, uh, fandom just ruins everything. That is, <laughs> that is my broad take. And, but I mean this in a very particular way. Uh, right. I mean, like, w- when I say fandom, I mean fandom with, like, a capital F, uh, which I mean in the same way uh, as talking about often, for example, capital G gamers, right. which represent a kind of just slavish literalism to the thing that you like that, especially in terms of adaptation, I think just is creatively damaging. It chokes off and it stagnates the ability to... And I mean, there, there are ways that people will, will make adaptations that service that. I think the, the example that I often use is the, the Watchmen movie. Right. Um, which, or, or 300. Really, either of those are great examples of making something that is trying to essentially just copy-paste the style uh, of the... Like, using the, the original thing as a storyboard... And just putting it there. Granted, there are, they still did make changes to Watchmen that I thought were dumb, but <laughs> uh, but still, like the there's uh, it, it ends up to me with this very surface level uh, the need to hit these very surface level things to the detriment of everything else, to the detriment of story, to the detriment of what film can offer and can elevate. And that is my rant about that. Like fandom. If it is, if the fan, if being the fan, if if having things exactly in this way is seen as the paramount, seen as the most important, I think that that never results in anything but bad adaptations. And that hits the nail on the head of what I was trying to say about Harry Potter. The first two movies are fan favorites because Christopher Columbus, like, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. Indeed, every fan who ever watched the movie after reading the books, like, oh my god, it's exactly what I wanted to see. Mm. Alfonso Curion's Prisoner of Azkaban didn't give me what I wanted. He instead gave me a lot of awesome, really cool scenes with emotion and visuals that Christopher Columbus wouldn't dare do because he'd be afraid of upsetting the fans. Curion's like, fuck it, this is my story. I'm telling it. Right. And uh, at the risk of of taking, like, dipping a toe into the the comic book thing, because there's an example here that I often like to use as far as, like, things that film offers that we don't often, that that in the original media, like, they didn't do or couldn't or didn't think of or whatever. Uh, Spider-Man. Sam Raimi Spider-Man. Right. Uh, One of the things that I loved so much and thought was so perfect in Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies are the fact that while Peter was swinging around, he would be, like, cheering he's like <laughs> like he is enjoying it like and in the comics he swings around and we like he'll be cracking jokes or he'll be internal monologuing about how rough it is to to spider-man uh but like that 
that moment of motion and of sound and of joy is a filmic thing that doesn't really work the same way in like the serial comic thing. And right. so, so that to me is, is one of the things that always pops in my head when I think about that, like well, the new opportunities that, that translating to a different uh, media offers. Well, and get, going back because they have like three more books in the Potters The fourth one, Goblet of Fire, directed by mm-hmm. Mike Newell, was also really good. It felt like a movie. Didn't feel like an adaptation. It felt like a movie. He cut some things out some people were happy with. Tough shit. That's going to happen sometimes. Yeah. And the movie felt alive and it felt emotional and it felt and it worked as a movie. Didn't need to read anything else. Didn't need any homework. You could watch the fucking movie. Yeah. Fans uh, hated it. And so Mike Newell <laughs> didn't get to direct 6 or 7 part 1 or 2. They got a guy uh-huh. named David Yates. And David Yates, much like you said, was slavish to the original material. And so what you have is the next three movies being utterly boring. And then he does the latest movie, uh, the the, uh, the Harry Potter spinoff, and everyone's like, "This movie sucks." And a lot of critics are like, "Yeah, because you guy did, the, you got the guy got who did the last three Harry Potter movies. Those suck too." <laughs> so what happens when you get a director with no imagination? You get shitty stories. Yeah. Um, like, you know, you know, you got your Harry Potter movies and, and, you know, for some people that's, that's just what they wanted. And there's, I'll be, I mean, for my personal perspective, I'll be super judgmental and snippy about that, but you know, they get their enjoyment <laughs> out of that and that's good, but to, but it also like, it limits it. You know, you're right. not, you're not getting those, those extra things. Um, and I, and I don't know, just putting that tight of fence around it is, I I under I understand that that more slavish fan impulse because uh, I was that I, I had that impulse a lot more when I was a, a younger viewer and reader, right. but um, whereas now uh, one of uh, this is actually something I only came to recently. Uh, both the movie and the book I only saw recently, but uh, as as I believe you are aware, uh, one of my favorite directors is David Cronenberg. Yes. Um, not just for the body horror stuff, but. But mostly for the body horror stuff. Scanners but his crime movies is badass. If you haven't seen, Scanners. oh hell yeah! But but all One like his crime movies and stuff are ever. top notch too. Like Eastern Promises oh, or yeah. or uh, any God, those are so great. Um, but specifically one of the movies i hadn't seen because i wanted to read the book first even though i knew reading the book first wouldn't like directly matter is naked lunch okay um now naked lunch for those of you who are not aware is a a book by william burroughs and it is insane it is it (laughs) is is most uh, william burroughs stuff yeah uh naked lunch is just a hallucinatory like it's just a hallucinatory jaunt through addiction and like layers of of reality and uh, there's all sorts of of gay or otherwise queer sex acts and just uh, weird non-existent drugs and non-existent beings that are also used either for drugs or sex acts or both uh it's a good book you should read it (laughs) (laughs) and that's all he has to say about that yeah, that's all. No, uh, but it's also a book that it like it, it, Burroughs used the the cut up method of of just like writing it, cutting it up, rearranging it, and like it is it is hard to parse. And there is a movie of it. The movie, <laughs> the movie is a synthesis of some bits from the the, the novel, uh, as well as some things from Burroughs' life. And it of course, and it stars the seminal, the brilliant, the 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 unimpeachable Peter Weller. Oh, uh, oh! Now you got my attention. <laughs> hell yeah! As Burroughs, uh, or well, as as Bur- Burroughs surrogate Bill Lee. Right. Um, 
going through, uh, let's just say some wild experiences. Um, but I think it's, I think it's a great adaptation despite the fact that the book is kind of unadaptable, (laughs) but it get like, it, it does an excellent job of, of representing the, the strangeness, the surreality, the, the desperation and the, uh, just the burrowsiness uh i think thematically uh just uh, i think that that way of of putting theme and putting the the sort of tone of the the novel as what the the movie is going toward and while it does lift some dialogue a lot of it is just not the same in a great way well speaking of things that are unadaptable there's of course charlie kaufman's adaptation yes which is nothing more than, quite frankly, a writing exercise screaming at people how unadaptable this book is. Uh, yeah, because it's it's an adapt. It is nominally an adaptation of a nonfiction book about s- uh, orchid hunting. Yeah, by uh, Susan Orlean it- called *The Orchid Thief*, and it's just a yeah. series of articles that were published in the New Yorker. And they're like, yeah. "Go ahead and adapt this," and he's like, "Are you fucking insane?" There's no story. Uh, yeah, and so it became this insane meta story about the the writer Charlie Kaufman and his totally real brother, um, <laughs> uh, played God. Like, what can what can be said about Nicolas Cage? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing can be said about Nicolas Cage. So we move on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One of the best Nick Cage's performances, and I don't mean this in an ironic way like most people mean them. I mean, this no. is definitely one of the better Nick Cage's performances you ever see. Uh, I think, well, I think there's definitely a reason why Herzog wanted to work with Nick Cage on Bad Lieutenant, colon, Port of Call, <laughs> New Orleans. And not just because he wanted the most awkward title in recent history. <laughs> right. But speaking of adaptation, though, in terms of it being this, like, I think calling it a script writing exercise is probably the best way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> have you read uh, because, uh, The Orchid Thief? Uh, I, I, I've read, I think I've read a couple of snippets from it. Like, I've read a couple of the sections. Um, and I think they're really interesting. Right. But, yeah, no, not I know, like, I, I, remember I, I wrote an article about this back when we had 3Geek. I yeah. did, like, a compare contrast. It is, like, I don't know how he fucking did it. Because hmm. it is, like, the odd, like, Chris Cooper character, Chris Cooper's character is in the book like maybe two or three articles out of like a series of 12. Hmm. Well, <laughs> actually, like, I don't know. I, I was, Oh no, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I don't have anything well, to say. Oh, okay. Uh, there's no, <laughs> there's no punchline. I'm just, <laughs> uh, but actually I, I found an interesting parallel to adaptation and I, I knew this was the case, but I'd kind of forgotten about it. Um, but in terms of adapting a nonfiction book that doesn't have a narrative, to a film that does have a narrative, uh, The Sting. Oh! The Sting is drawn heavily from a nonfiction book called The Big Con, the story of the Confidence Man, which right, is a, a I great... I read The Big Con, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great book if you are in any way interested in con man uh, shenanigans. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is just fantastic. If you're interested uh, in storytelling at all, you should read about confidence games and con men. Yeah, like, <laughs> if, if you're interested in con men specifically, you should read The Big Con, you should read Melville's The Confidence Men, and 
than whatever else you want. Those you should also read Haley Houdini, so light way to do wrong. Yes. Uh, but anyway, but no, yeah, The Sting is is drawn from a, a nonfiction, like, sort of folk account of things that con men did. And instead, they, instead of making it this kind of tour of different con men, they they turn it into that sort of archetypal story of this young con man being, you know, the, you know the story of The Sting. Right. But for those of you who don't, uh, they turn it into the story of, of the young con man sort of uh, being tutored by all of these old hands and them pulling together and doing something awesome and uh and you know the the closest modern parallel would of course be like the oceans 11 movies uh but yeah so that's that's another one of those like the the those are two great movies i think unimpeachably great movies uh that just did did 100 percent their own thing with what is only kind of tangentially their source material. Right. And, well, uh, Roy Hill, the guy who directed The Sting, you would never know that watching the movie. It is a streamlined, impeccably crafted script in terms of, like, laying down the little hints and tricks that it pulls off. Was was that Goldman who did the the script? Yes. Which we'll talk about Goldman right now in terms of uh, another adaptation. Oh, yes, let's. If you you don't you may not know this, but you love William Goldman. <laughs> William Goldman is one of the best screenwriters slash authors that you've never heard of. Uh, but yes, The Princess Bride uh, hit it. Uh, well, The Princess Bride, like the movie, is one of the best movies, like script wise, one of the most easily quotable movies ever, next to like The Big Lebowski. Mm. And have you read The Princess Bride? Uh, I've I've not actually read the novel. No, I am a failed human. That's fine. No, no, because here's the thing: because even Goldman would tell you the book, the movie is superior. Yeah, to the but book. I I like all sorts of things that are are not great. <laughs> right, and while we just talked about how you really can't compare the two, mm. the movie is better simply because the story is more suited for screen almost. Because in the book, instead of having a grandfather telling a story to his sick grandson. It is William Goldman trying to find a book that his father had told him about to give to his son. And William Goldman in the book is a dick. <laughs> so it's not even... Presumably not even the real William Goldman. It's a fake, dickish version of William Goldman. Uh, you're he actually making me... doesn't even really like his son, and it's... <laughs> you're actually making me want to read this book more. <laughs> and it's one of those things where... It sounds awesome, but the way it's done, it's like, I don't want... Like, he'll get inside the, the actual story of the Princess Bride, and you'll get into it, and then it'll stop. And he'll be like, oh, this part, we have, it's lost to history, we don't know what this is. Dude, okay, you, I, clearly, I, we talk, we actually, in our, in our secret personal lives, talked about this a little while ago, but you're, you're planning on reading Don Quixote in the near future, right? I've already read Don Quixote, I just wanted to buy it. Oh, okay, I can, I, uh, then, in that case, like... Don Quixote does that. Like right. that's the that like I you're well, seriously Don selling. Don Quixote doesn't go back to the author who's being a dick, complaining I guess about that's his fair. son and maybe cheating on his wife. I, I seriously though, you're really like I really kind of want to read well, like, this. Like, see, like intellectually, it sounds awesome, but even Goldman admits he he didn't pull it off. All right, but I'm probably still gonna try and read it later. Right, no, you're like you should like read it if you can. <laughs> yeah. And there's also a uh, little bit of racism in the book too, just a fair warning. Yeah, there's there's a huge surprise. Yeah. Uh, also, not, like, not, there is a bit not of whitewashing. At Goldman, just 
and just at Bride, but I think that's almost intentional. Mm. With um, Mandy Patinkin playing the Spaniard. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes, but <laughs> even William Goebbels like, no, what I tried to do in the book, I may, I was able to do better in the movie. But even though, uh, even then, though, I still know people who like the book better than the movie. Yeah, and I mean, there are all sorts of like that's. Uh, I, I, in my snobbier moments, I will say sometimes that you are that people are wrong when they make those calls. But to be fair, right. there, there's so many things: personal taste, like right. what you're into, what genres uh, and what media you like the most. Like so, right. it's fine. I'll, Not to mention, I'll... books are much more intimate. Yeah, and they and they stay with you a little bit in a different way because you, it takes longer to read them. Because uh, the yeah, movie is but... only going to take probably out anywhere from. 80 minutes to two and a half hours a book, depending on how much time you have, could take anywhere from a day to two or three weeks. Yeah, and, and I mean, especially considering I didn't I didn't know this until recently, but apparently there are people out there who don't obsessively watch move like the same movie over and over. My wife is the same way, unless she's like she really likes the movie. I'm don't. like, no, 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 you haven't seen the movie unless you've seen it twice. But but then again, like to me, that's also like that's my response to everything. When people <laughs> when people say they don't reread books, I'm horrified. I don't understand so, those people. Like I have like four or five books that I read like every year. <laughs> yeah, like you, you and I are are maybe not like <laughs> our our way of interacting with media is probably unique, right. or at well, least it's it's very specifically carved out. Well, going back to like how fandoms like can poison it. I brought yes. up in our private conversation Wizard of Oz, and you said he didn't like the argument. Hmm. Because uh, the argument I was making was fandom's adherence to purity of the subject matter can damage the creativity of the adaptation's artistic possibilities. Yeah. And I pointed out Wizard of Oz, because Wizard of Oz is nothing like the book. The book yeah, I mean, my main... No, Definitely. <laughs> I mean, my main my main reason for for pushing back on on that example was was largely just because like it's hard to imagine like because you you were saying that Wizard of Oz really couldn't have been done today, but like Wizard of Oz is such a huge cultural touchstone of a movie that I don't even know what the movie landscape would look like today without Wizard of Oz happening this, when it did. This is true, but this is what feeding into what, another thing I want to talk about is the way fandom can affect box yeah. office business now. If they suspect the movie will not be faithful to the beloved book. Yeah, and I think like the the easiest thing to point to here is just look at what the San Diego Comic Con is. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's nothing it is, but uh, getting fandom to approve of the art they just made. Yeah. And I mean one of the biggest sort of um I, I think in terms of turnaround successes is as far as capitalizing on fandom is uh, Deadpool. Right. Uh, now this is, that's getting us a little too far in the comic direction, but I think it just in terms of like what what fandom is often used for, and I think this was intentional in the case of Deadpool, is to to generate that kind of hype by uh, being what the fandom wants it to be. Well, and this is one of the things where they sort of played fandom a little bit. Because they're yeah. like, oh, look at this funny thing we made. Oh, you want it? You want more? Well, we need your support. And fandom just showed up and like, fucking hey, yeah, you did. And, and I mean, like... like they, did, they walked the fine line of giving us what they want, what we wanted, at the same time by telling us a really good story. Yeah. And I, I think, like, I'm suspicious of it 
because it's it, I don't know the way that it preys on fans right. uh, is a little is is kind of creepy. But at the <laughs> same time, I uh, I also you know I am a, a comic book nerd and a book nerd of old, right. and I remember. I remember the days when, like, <laughs> you get the Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie. <laughs> and, and, and no disrespect to Dolph Lundgren. I would never he man, But Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, Masters of the Universe is its own debacle. Uh, <laughs> I love that movie for completely separate reasons from my love of Masters of the we Universe. Could, we could feasibly talk about He-Man Masters of the Universe, but it's not based on a book, it's based on a cartoon. No. Yeah, different thing, which is itself based on an action figure. So <laughs> this, this whole thing is backwards. But, but, um, but no, I because, like, you know, I remember the, the earliest days of, of comic book quote-unquote adaptations. <laughs> Uh, when, you know, you'll get, like, a name, and then they do whatever they want. And by, by a name, we mean a name for the movie, not, like, a name actor. Like, the actor <laughs> yeah. would have a name, but it would mean <laughs> nothing to you. Uh, so, so it's like, uh, there's the part of me, and I don't like this part of me, but, but that, like, capital F fandom fan still exists in me, and, like, and rules over these things. Well, but I'm, I'm suspicious of that part of myself, because I, I think it's, in some ways, a, a way to, uh, well, like we were saying, it's it's a way to do exactly what people want and not really do anything especially new. Right. Well, perfect example. A modern example of what we're talking about is the Dark Tower. Oh yes. It's the Dries Elba, Matthew McConaughey director. I don't have written down. I'm I'm a bad person. Um, yeah, I, you know what? I, I think that the director's name might have already been lost to history, actually, much <laughs> like the movie itself. Before the movie came out, there was a lot of speculation about it was going to be awful. Wasn't confirmed. Everyone was like, it's probably going to be awful. This is probably going to suck. There's no way they're going to be able to do the source material the in a way that will serve it to, mm. to our likely, our like, our favoritism. It's it yeah. was really weird because no one gave it a shot. They were already out, out of the gate like, it's probably going to suck. And enough people started that sort of m- mindset of, it's going to suck. And then it came out, and you know, it's not great, but it's not horrible. I've seen yeah, that was, worse that actually King was King adaptations. Largely, that, is, that was largely what I heard about it, was that it's like, eh. Like, it's, it's a serviceable summer action something or other. Like, there are a lot of uh, questions it doesn't answer. But that's fine. I've seen a lot of shitty Hollywood big budget fantasy movies that didn't answer half the questions it asked, and I was you know what, to tears. What, when I think of of a similar thing to what you're talking about, I think of a movie that I, that was made specifically for me by, and I appreciate <laughs> I, I appreciate this deeply that uh, Disney decided to make a movie for just me, <laughs> uh, John Carter of Mars, which is what I would call it, uh, was. A movie that I absolutely loved. Right. And it was not sold to anyone. <laughs> like, th- this wasn't even, this wasn't even a, like, people were panning it before it came out. Like, this is clearly somebody decided beforehand that we're, like, in the shadowy mists of Hollywood, that we're not going to financially commit to this movie. <laughs> you can, t- the, and the reason, like, I, I'm obviously not a, a, an expert on Hollywood backroom things, but the reason you can tell this with 100% certainty is that it had an adorable, like, multi-legged space dog that you could not buy merchandise of. <laughs> and 
I'm going to tell you right now, I'll be fucked if I've never seen a Disney movie where they didn't find a way to merchandise the shit out of it. Yeah, I am. I'm still haunted by this uh, because <laughs> like I, I am, of course, I, I'm a huge fan of, of old pulp novels. Right. Um, and I like John Carter of Mars, especially because since it's because uh, it's Edgar Rice Burroughs. But since it's taking place on another planet, it's not nearly as racist as uh, the Tarzan <laughs> books often are. <laughs> Well, thank heavens for little favorites. <laughs> I mean, they're not perfect by any stripe. <laughs> right, but, but just because on a different planet already. <laughs> yeah, but because it's not a white guy writing stories about a superhuman white guy living in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyway, but yeah, like that to me is is kind of a, a, a an amazing example of how it's actually a, it, it's not a slavish adaptation, even though it was made by some pretty big mega fans. Uh, you can tell because the movie got made at all. Right. Um, <laughs> but the uh, I know that that uh, the scripts, uh, at least one of the drafts of the script was written by uh, Michael Shaban, uh, the guy who wrote Wonder Boys and uh, a bunch of other novels and short stories right. uh and the director is one of the the pixar directors who i i've blanked on because i'm a monster right. but um and, and yeah like they were they were big fans there is really a passion project and it has a great cast and one of my favorite disney princesses she counts as a disney princess damn it uh <laughs> because she is a fucking space science genius like warrior uh and that that's i like that in in a uh, in my Martian people. Right. Well, <laughs> and this goes into like what we're talking about. Like, I don't think a lot of diehard fans recognize with the book the author's just trying to win you over. Yeah. With the movie, he has to win the entire audience over, not just you, yeah. but the other three hundred and thirty-five people in that theater. Like, there are different commercial pressures. Right. <laughs> there are just universes of different commercial pressures on a film. Well, not only that, but as we talked about earlier. What works on the page doesn't work on the screen. When you make a movie, you're dealing with images. When you write a book, you're dealing with word choices. What word choices is going to get the image that you want to create in that reader's head the best way? Yeah. And I mean, we're also we're also talking about this really abstractly, which means like when you get closer to specific examples, there's questions of when was the the book written versus when are we making the movie? Exactly. Uh, what has like, changed? What hasn't yeah. changed? Those, um, you know, th- those questions like the are are central to doing a good adaptation. Like there's uh, a reason that I mean, when you let's see, I. Right. Yep. But yeah, one of the the era that a book was written in can also offer a lot of options for for how you adapt it, whether you want to lean into the era that it's from or whether you want to sort of take the themes and the events and adapt them to the time the movie's being made. Right. Um, example one of my one of my favorite uh adaptations i actually saw the movie first because i i it took me a little bit to run down the book but was uh the movie high rise that came out a little while ago oh uh, tom hiddleston yeah, yeah tom hiddleston uh directed by ben wheatley i believe is how you say oh it. he did free fire okay yeah, yeah um but it's it's an adaptation of a jg ballard novel which i absolutely loved when i read it um <laughs> even though i i actually i 
uh, it, it's an it's another book that was seen as as something uh, of an impossibility to adapt, but I think they did a good job of uh, of doing so. Uh, they had to streamline and cut around things and all that. But as we've been saying this whole time, that is what you do. Right. Um, and it, it it's just this really interesting and also really horrific. Uh, it, like it's not an unequivocal recommendation. There's some content warnings. There's sexual assault. There's <laughs> violence. Like. It is a dark movie, right. but it's also a dark movie about like the trappings of uh, the sort of commercialist uh, society and like how things fall apart. Uh, and it's it's beautifully shot. It's got a, it's got a great cast. Not only does it have uh, Tom Hiddleston, but it has um, oh I I always blank on her name uh, the 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 woman who played Zoe Bartlett in West Wing. Elizabeth uh, Moss. Elizabeth Moss, that was it. I couldn't think of her last name. Uh, Elizabeth Moss. Um, just, Don't yeah, fuck with uh, me on West Wing trivia, folks. I'm going to nail it. <laughs> that's, that's why I phrased it that way, as opposed to like, <laughs> oh, she, she played the detective in Top of the Lake, which, I by the way... I would have been like, I know that series. I watched a couple episodes. Holly Hunter's in it. I don't know who that is. <laughs> right. Uh, by the way, separate topic, but great series. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but yeah, well, it's 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 a anyway. High Rise is a movie that leans heavy into the seventies aesthetic right. uh, to to its benefit. Um, so that was, I, I think, a good example of of that kind of uh, choice. To give you an idea of what an adaptation, what what making an adaptation would be like, is Kevin Smith was in Die Hard, Live for Your Die Hard. Mm. And yeah, wasn't he one of like the fifty scriptwriters? <laughs> this is what happened. He's on the he's in the movie, and all of a sudden Bruce Willis has to walk over to his character, and Bruce Willis is all of a sudden not having it. She's having a method actor moment, and he turns to the director's like, "Would John McClane really walk over to him?" And the director's like, "You send a script, we need you because I'm going to mash cut it with this." <sighs> and he's like, and. Uh, <laughs> Like, I don't know. I don't know if I do it. And Kevin Smith's like, look, I can rewrite the scene if you want. It's like, would you? It's like, yeah, I can write it. And Bruce Willis like, okay, you can't say fuck. Why the fuck can I say fuck? I'm going for a PG-13 movie. You're fucking kidding me! Oh. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's what they want. Get the fuck out of here! Oh. And like, just that, like, that idea of, like, I'm going to write a diehard scene. I, I can't say what? And that's yeah. when you're making an adaptation. Sometimes you're dealing with that sort of like you're dealing with not just audience expectations, but pressures from the studio of like, hey, yeah, hey can well, we have this character I mean, the, in the book? Uh, we have no way of doing that. <laughs> the the ratings the the rating is is t- directly to finances, right. like into where who they're going to market to, how much they're they're going to spend, how much they're going to expect back. I mean that. To lean on the previous example, that's why Deadpool was such a shock that it did so well as an, as a low budget R rated movie. Right, because at that point, everyone was at that point in time, people were like, "There's no way an R rated comic book movie, because only teenagers like comic book movies." Right, will do uh, that but, well. Uh, and and you know, I'll I'll say that like you know, Deadpool is probably one of the reasons why we got to have Logan, which is one of my favorite westerns of the recent era. <laughs> it's also one of my favorite movies of the year. And if you see it, be careful. If you're over a certain age, it's going to fuck you up emotionally. <laughs> yeah. Actually, if you're under a certain age, it'll fuck you up emotionally, too, but in a wholly different way. <laughs> <laughs> like, I remember walking out of the theater and my wife going, are you okay? You seem a little you seem a little out of it. I'm like, I'm fine. I, just, I need a moment. 
well, it's, it's okay, though, because according to the rules of masculinity, uh, Jeremiah, westerns are one of the things that we're allowed to cry about. It wasn't because I was crying, it because it gave me, like, a midlife fucking crisis. <laughs> uh, anyway, but yes, we're, I'm, I pulled us into comic book direction again. Sorry, it's, okay. it's my custom. We're, we're towards the end of our episode, anyway. Okay, so so let us bring back to our our core. Like uh, of the things that we have discussed, then what do I'll I'll, I'll ask you, uh, as, and that'll keep me from having to answer first. Uh, <laughs> what what do you think is if you were if you were saying like this is what is required to you of an adaptation? What what must what must happen? The only uh, thing any storyteller is required to do is to tell me a good story. So that's all that I really require in an adaptation. If I find out afterwards they whitewashed it or they took it out of a woman's role or something like that, that's going to affect me a little. That's going to be like, well, you shouldn't have done that. That's fucking clearly patriarchy and all that. Mm. But the story matters. And I don't care if it's this, like, if you take a little bit of the story and tell me a new one, I'm fine with that too. As long as you give me the credit of telling me a good story. Because like I said, I shouldn't have to fucking do homework before I see a movie. So I don't need to have read the book to enjoy the movie. If reading the yeah. book is is imperative for, on my enjoyment of the movie, then you've made a really shitty adaptation. Yeah, I think uh, I I like that point. I think uh, knowing the source material can be, uh, I think, not not necessarily saying ignore it entirely, but if it is crucial to the enjoyment of the movie, that is right. definitely a failure. Like, but I, I think there are also. I, I think there are ways that, that that material can be mined to help create a fuller world in that right. the, the sort of sense of the Harry Potter stuff that you were talking about earlier. Um, but yeah, no, I like that a lot. Yeah, no, like uh, if you basically, if a movie can introduce me to a new author, that's fine. Oftentimes I, I get, in, uh, I fall into my media backwards. I get into directors from books. I get into books from movies. Right, we're we're constantly falling backwards into interesting things. <laughs> right. Uh, well, and so I guess the lesson of the day's podcast is pull your head out of your ass and just enjoy the damn movie. Yeah, um, I think for me really, uh, and this, uh, this is basically one of the first things I said and I still feel it, is uh, like you said, like I think story uh, and, and doing a story well within the tools of the medium is, is what you should do in any art form. Right. Uh, and, and I think if you're going to adapt something, there can be a lot of leeway. I think if, if you're if you're trying to make, let's say, a, a, a strong adaptation, uh, then I think at least being aware of what the themes and what the styles uh, in play, what the, what the themes and the technical styles in play in the original work, it's important to know those so that you can think about how that might, uh, what you could do to strongly do that in, a, in an adaptation. But even that isn't required because if you look at things like adaptation uh, <laughs> that goes way off the chain, if you look at, say, the the greatest uh, Stephen King adaptation, uh, or technically Richard Bachman, The Running Man, uh, um, <laughs> there's, there's absolutely no content in common, really, aside from there being some sort of contest involving death. Well, once you get on a Schwarzenegger, that that cancels everything out. You yeah, don't need anything I, that's else. yeah, that's a bullshit example on my part. I just wanted to say those words. <laughs> that's fine. And with but that, no, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Telling telling a good story is the ultimate thing. I think the only thing that you really owe if you're trying to make an adaptation that in some way serves or in some way reflects the the original material 
is in terms of tone and of style far and away more than particular lines and particular scenes. Right, like plot points and all that. Like as long as the story is good and fits the story you want to tell, that's fine. Yeah, that is to me uh, slavish sticking to like scene to scene uh, uh, from a book, like trying to do that from a book is I think an exercise in ridiculous like time wasting like art failure. (laughs) Right. And with that, we have to go. Um, review and subscribe to us on iTunes. We're going to be there now, I swear. I didn't realize we weren't. That was my bad. Uh, my yes, fault. you will You will find us by searching for Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. That's all, folks. We- have a good one. <laughs> Bye.